Turn to the book of James, chapter 1. We're reading verses 1 to 3. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting, my brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience or endurance. Father, we are thankful to begin a new book of study in this hour. And we pray that you would assist us by the indwelling giver of the word, thy blessed and Holy Spirit, Bless us with the understanding of the word and the uniqueness of the book of which we begin to study together on this Lord's Day morning. We have so many things to be thankful for, and we certainly want to express to you again in this hour our thanksgiving and praise. We thank you for the way that the congregation has ministered one to another in the reading of scripture and in the singing of songs. And now, Lord, we pray that in this moment, our hearts and minds will be captured with the unique opportunity that is before us. In this book, we pray that there would be a healthy and robust response to the truth of it, week after week after week, should our Lord tarry And we continue in earthly sojourn here in this old world. Thank you for the light of Christ that has dawned on us. Help us now as we attend to it and as we seek to attend to him. For we pray in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake. Amen. The deacon in the Jerusalem church named Stephen had been killed for gospel testimony raised before the Jewish Sanhedrin, Acts chapter 8. James, the son of Zebedee, the brother of the apostle John, had been killed by Herod Agrippa I, Acts chapter 12. Before the church council called to resolve the issues raised by gospel advance among the Gentiles, Acts chapter 15, this epistle, this letter of James was written. It was of the first, if not the first, New Testament book written. And yet, it's interesting that history tells us it was one of the last 
letters, one of the last epistles, to be widely accepted as Holy Scripture. One commentator calls the book of James the ugly duckling of the New Testament. The great reformer Martin Luther made such disparaging remarks about this epistle that many uh, that honored him and followed him completely missed the blessedness and the practical value of this hard-punching communication. My goal today is that we would better understand the unique history and the unique theology and something of the practical value of this spirit-driven communication as we begin. We here in Elto are greatly advantaged in our study of the book of James because of our recent exposure uh, to the compelling appeal of the book of Hebrews. Uh, That compelling appeal for a living faith, faith that is expressed in actual life. And we also are greatly advantaged because of the recent preaching emphasis upon uh, King Jesus and his messianic manifesto. I've selected five words today around which we're going to rally our thinking really throughout uh, the study of the book of James uh, for promotion of godly perspective to be maintained as we move through the book verse by verse, week by week, in coming weeks. Uh, Today, uh, I'll explain the the why of the words that we chose, those words just, juncture, uh, juxtaposition, jammed, and jolt, to summarize the book of James. I'm going to take the word juxtaposition last. And I do that because the summary of that word requires the greatest thought and, uh, and the greatest embrace of perspective to be offered today by way of introduction. Uh, the first word that I list for you is the word just. The word means righteous. Just means righteous. James, the human author of this communication, had a reputation among early church saints as being a godly and righteous man. The Greek historian Eusebius tells us that James, the brother of our Lord, was surnamed by early church believers, James the Just, James the Righteous, because of his reputation as a serious follower of God's Old Testament law and a serious follower of the leader of the New Testament church, namely Jesus Christ, or as James says it in verse 1, the Lord Jesus Christ. But James has a unique sense of, of commitment in reputation as one who was exercising himself rightly. James the judge. 
The second word that I offer you this morning by way of introduction is the word juncture. Because this letter is written in a particular juncture of time, even as our opening comments uh, indicated when we began. The word refers to an important point in time in church history, the history of the early church. And as we referenced, early church history is, reco is recorded in the Bible, the book of Acts. Most of you are aware uh, that the outline of uh, gospel growth and development uh, was indeed forecast by the Lord Jesus on Ascension Mount. The apostles of Jesus Christ were told that they, the apostles, would bear witness to him as both Lord and Christ in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and in the uttermost part of the earth. After considerable months and years, the church on earth was still primarily associated with the city in Jerusalem until persecution drove believers far and wide. The Jerusalem pastor, James, wrote this letter to scattered church members driven away from the local church in Jerusalem by persecution. This brings us to our next summary word, which is the word jammed. Jammed means squeezed and likely uncomfortable, unless it's on my breakfast table. And then jam means sweet and toast. But the word jam means to be squeezed and uncomfortable. The Hebrew Christians to whom this letter was written were experiencing mounting conflicts and pressure both of the societal and religious sort. Jewish authorities who were loyal to rabbinical Judaism uh, like Saul of Tarsus actively sought out and harassed believers in Jesus as the Christ. While Jewish tribal identities were by and large blurred and lost after the historical return of the Jewish people from exile, uh, the testimony that comes out of the Old Testament era uh, uh, tells us that there were some sense of tribal distinctions noted, especially by uh, uh, the last names that were associated with people. Uh, if you ever meet a Jewish per person uh, that is named uh, uh, Cohen, there was a, a CNN newscaster whose name was Elizabeth Cohen. And her last name, Cohen, as a Jewess, would tell me that she was of a priestly family, Kaniah. And uh, that's an interesting thing to chase. Uh, there's some sense of tribal indication. But Ch Pastor James, uh, as indicated in verse 1, uh, writes to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. And he's referencing not the whole nation of Israel, 
uh, as was true in the Old Testament era of exile, but is herein true of the Jewish congregation in the Jerusalem church. He uses the historical word for their scattering, the historical word for their dispersion, namely diaspora. The word diaspora in the Old Testament speaks of the scattering of the Jewish people as caused by their sin and God's judgment. In the New Testament, James uses the word diaspora for the scattering of believers out of the Jerusalem church which was caused by their personal relationship with God and salvation and the historical record of gospel advance. Diaspora, Old Testament, is about sin. Diaspora, New Testament, is about salvation. The program of God, Old Testament, is centripetal, meaning that God established a testimony in the temple and everybody was expected to come to it. But in the New Testament, the elements of God's offer to mankind are centrifugal, going out from the center, out from the church to the world. And thereby, uh, in the back of our auditorium is a, is a copied and, and somewhat uh, famous statement to the world with the word. Uh, that idea of taking the things of God outside the walls of the church uh, describes uh, not only evangelism, but missionary endeavor. And uh, those things are certainly indicated uh, by the word diaspora. Diaspora, uh, seed scattering. Old Testament had to do with sin. Uh, New Testament seed scattering has to do with gospel witness and gospel advance. That brings us to the fourth word, which is the word jolt. And if you think we're preaching quickly, you won't in a minute. <laughs> but the word jolt, it, of course, means surprise or shock because the nature and tenor of this pastoral letter is jolting. There are 54 imperatives that make up the communication of this particular letter. Pastor James acknowledges the pressures of God's people as they are being faced, and yet, as a pastor, he will not allow them to take any comfort in worldly compromise. He is going to continue his ministry according to reputation as James the Just. And he is going to represent, like a fence post represents a place, a marker, and a field. He is going to represent uh, the truth of Christ without compromise, even though the people in his day were indeed hurting and scattered by means of persecution. James insists that those with faith in the person of Christ live lives of good works and virtue. 
If we summarize the book of Hebrews as an exhortation to living faith, then we can certainly summarize the book of James as an exhortation to working faith. The faith that works. James calls for the kind of belief that behaves. Do you believe? Yes. Do you behave? Yes. I trust you can say. Edmund Hebert, that dear brother from the South, writes, This epistle sternly insists upon Christian practice, consistent with Christian belief. It heaps scathing contempt upon all empty profession and administers a stinging rebuke to the reader's worldliness, end quote. Therefore, we can say in application that James seeks to jolt us, shock us, to conduct, becoming a Christian, to a demeanor, complementary to sound doctrine, to a character after the fashion of the resurrected Christ. James will say, show me your Christian faith. We might think James, born of Missouri, the show-me state. For James will say, show me your Christian faith in working and living demonstration. Don't tell me, don't tell me, don't tell me you're a Christian. Live it. Don't just tell me you've made a profession of faith. Work it out and live it in demonstration. That's James, that's James, that's James. I hope you're still excited to hear about it, because, <laughs> boy, I'll tell you, that is, a, that is a, a tough one in this generation to preach and teach, to be sure. And now we come to that last word, and it's a big word, and I don't use it often, and it's the word juxtaposition, juxtaposition. So I brought helps because they helped me. I brought helps because I hope they bring, help you. I have in my hands two pieces of fruit. And this is an apple. And this, of course, is an orange. And I've already, by nature of holding them up, I have placed them in juxtaposition. But if we're going to deal with the word juxtaposition correctly, we have to first look at the two things that we've brought to bear and ask ourselves, in what way are they the same? And then, after comparing the two, we have to ask ourselves, in which, way, in which ways are they different? And when we work through the intellectual process of comparison and contrast, comparison and contrast, comparison and contrast, then we have indeed placed the two things under consideration in juxtaposition. And so when it comes to apples and oranges, we often use the phrase to speak of common uh, juxtaposition. Uh, I'm talking about apples. Sherry responds to me talking about oranges. 
And I say to her, I'm talking apples and you're talking oranges. And then I saying that, it means that we have been, our conversation has been placed in juxtaposition. There's a comparison in what we're saying, but there is also a great contrast in what we're saying. Uh, this is a fruit and this is a fruit. Uh, this fruit is, uh, is usually uh, reddish in color and, uh, and uh, uh, has a, a, usually a, a piece of the stem that is left and attached. Uh, it's an apple, and I like apples. And this is an orange, and usually picked from the tree in such a way that there is no stem. Uh, uh, this has seeds, and the old-fashioned oranges have seeds. Some of the new oranges don't have seeds, but nonetheless, these, uh, this apple and this orange are likewise the same because they're fake. <laughs> I didn't bring real ones. I can't eat these. I, I took these out of Sherry's bowl. So nonetheless, uh, uh, you know, th- these are fake fruits, which there's a sermon in that too, but I'm not preaching that today. But uh, uh, they're both fruits, and in this case, they're both fa- uh, fake fruits. But you know, and would not be hard at all if I gave you the assignment, to begin to write down uh, the differences between an apple and an orange. You could do it. I could do it. The kids could do it. We could all do it. And when we wrote down both the comparison points and the contrasting points, well, then we would be placing the apple and the orange in juxtaposition. I trust that I'll help you with the definition of the word, which means to place two things side by side for comparison and contrast, or otherwise, by means of comparison, a goal of contrast. By means of comparison, a goal in contrast, juxtaposition. The book of James is often placed in juxtaposition to the Old Testament book of Proverbs because, like Proverbs, the book of James is pithy, and practical. While James is like Proverbs in style and emphasis upon practical living, the epistle of James deals directly with personal consequences of faith in the person and the work of Jesus the Christ. James is a comparison to the book of Proverbs but it contrasts from the book of Proverbs in that Proverbs speaks of those general principles of wisdom that are brought to bear upon the people of God, where James speaks of the particular wisdom that is found in Jesus Christ. Furthermore, some people put the book of James in juxtaposition to the Old Testament book of Amos, particularly because of the fact that James, in this letter, uh, in chapter 2 and chapter 5, confronts uh, social injustice. And because of the topic of social injustice as dealt with in the book of James, uh, 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 there is a, a, a number of scholars that place the book of James in juxtaposition with Amos because likewise Amos, as an Old Testament prophet, uh, spoke about the social injustices of his generation. Now, while James does not mince words concerning 
uh, injustices among the people of God in, in this letter. Uh, it really is a contrast uh, to Old Testament Amos uh, in some phenomenal ways. And really, I think that the juxtaposition is a little bit forced and certainly a little bit limited. But most right-minded scholars place the book of James in juxtaposition to the Lord's Sermon on the Mount, or the Messianic Manifesto, as we've called it now for months. You and I, again, are greatly advantaged. We just work through that. And because we've just worked for that, when we recognize that scholar upon scholar upon scholar uh, places the book of James in juxtaposition uh, with the Lord's Sermon on the Mount, uh, it really speaks to uh, something that I trust that, that we have a unique sense of preparation of the Spirit of God uh, to hear. Uh, our trusted commentator, Brother John MacArthur, cites 21 connections between the Sermon on Righteousness proclaimed by King Jesus on the hilltop and the communication that is found in the book of James. 21 connections between the structure of the Sermon on the Mount and the book of James. There is no doubt that the Lord's Sermon played large in the mind and the heart of his half-blood brother when writing to the Christian diaspora. It is good to place the book of James in juxtaposition to the book of Proverbs. It's better uh, to put it in juxtaposition uh, to the Lord's Sermon on the Mount. We can, and there is a point to be made, in placing the book of James in juxtaposition uh, to uh, the Old Testament prophet Amos. But I want to use the word juxtaposition, juxtaposition in a completely different way. I want to use that word to present the historical and theological truth that is at the center of of Christian controversy for the last 1,000 years. There is a 1,000-year controversy that divides all Christendom in our day. The great reformer, Martin Luther, that led the Back to the Bible movement of 1500 A.D. struggled with the book of James. It is historically important to remember why Martin Luther struggled with the book of James. Because then you understand some of his disparaging comments concerning the book. He often heard Roman Catholic scholars present the Roman view 
of justification by faith and works as defended from James chapter 2, verse 14, and James chapter 2, verse 24. And if you are observant, somewhere on your notes is printed today, is what I've listed as the key book of, or key verse of James, and I've listed James 2.14 and James 2.24, 2.14 in particular. Uh, We want to look at those in just a moment, but please understand this. Luther appealed and rallied around the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And he did so by stating Paul's clear statements of justification by faith. As found in the book of Romans and as found in the book of Galatians. Are believers in Jesus justified by faith alone? Yes. Paul. Or are believers justified by faith and good works? Yes. James. And so Luther viewed James as contradictory, not just a contrast, but contradictory to Paul. And uh, Luther went with Paul. And let me just say, you can't be bad in your theology if you run with the Apostle Paul. You know what I'm saying? That's a good thing to run with Paul. Thank God Luther ran with Paul. Because in the beginning days of the Back to the Bible movement, there were many church traditions, many church uh, 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 edicts that would have to be overturned by a faithful embrace of the Word of God. And so Luther stands up preaching uh, to the generation of people of, of his day saying, Scripture, 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 we stand and we fall by the Word of God. He's right. He's really right. And uh, we ought to have good things to say about Luther, although he had a bad attitude towards Jewish people, and he had a bad attitude towards James, and he killed a lot of Baptists. I mean, literally, he had Baptists drowned. I mean, it's really an enigma for me to say I like Martin Luther, because after all, he, you know, he kind of put it to us. <laughs> Historically. I'm sure he'll apologize to me when I see him. But nonetheless... Look at James 2.14. What doth faith, or what doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith, and have not works, can faith save him? Now, around here, we're very careful to not take any word away from Scripture or add any word to the Scripture. That said, you know that sometimes even in our King James Bible, the scholars have added an italics word in to help us make a little clearer sense of the text. And uh, sometimes I read those italic words, and sometimes like this morning in Matthew 8, 
I skipped right over one because I don't think that the word of italics makes any, any help to the text of understanding whatsoever, and I'm not compelled to have to read it when it's in italics. So I'm going to give you my italics word. I'm going to add an italics word to James 2.14. Ready? Here we go. What doth it profit? Notice, doth it. What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works? Can that, T-H-A-T, italics, can that faith save him? And the answer is no. Look at 224. Ye see, then, and of course, at this juncture, many of us really don't, but ye see, then, how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. Those are the two statements that just absolutely unnerved the reformer, Martin Luther, because every time he would engage in discussion with Roman Catholic priests of his weight and punching power, they would use James 2, 14 and 24 to build the case for the Roman Catholic doctrine of faith and works. And Luther would come back with Romans 3 and Galatians 3 and saved by faith alone. Luther launched the Reformation on Paul's clarity of doctrine. Roman Catholicism defended her doctrine of salvation by quoting James. No wonder Luther had attitude about the book of James. But what happens and I'm asking, what happens when we place the doctrinal truth of emphasis in James side by side with the doctrinal truth of Paul emphasized in Romans and Galatians? What we find is that the statements of both, when taken out of context, appear to be mutually exclusive. But upon study, we find that Paul and James believe the exact same thing about salvation and they believe the exact same thing about the believer's appointment to good works. Paul made those two issues very clear when he said we are saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves it is the work of God not of works as any man should boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus Appointed, ordained unto good works. Paul preached sola fide, saved by faith alone, a faith that works. James is simply saying that saving faith works. In the excellent materials that are available to us online these days, uh, from Legionnaire Ministries and a host of other evangelical sources, uh, the point is made that both Paul and James cite uh, Abraham uh, as uh, the man of reference to make their case. 
and we will address the rationale and the logic of all that in days ahead when we come to these verses uh, verse by verse. But this morning, and quickly, we have only a few moments left, I want to quickly place in juxtaposition the truth of justification by faith and the truth of justification by faith and works by simply stating the truth of both. Paul is talking about our legal or forensic justification before God in Romans and Galatians. Both Paul and James would absolutely agree that a person is saved by grace through faith apart from their personal merits or works. We are saved as the reformers asserted the truth, sola fide. While our standing before God is construed upon the exclusive righteousness of Christ by faith alone, that faith from God is never alone. The precise teaching of Scripture is that we are justified before God by faith alone, but that faith does not stand alone in the life of the believer. Saving faith is characteristically connected to good works. Paul deals with the doctrine of legal justification. James deals with the truth of visual justification before God and men. In 2.14, we'll provide you further rationale ahead But we can rephrase the question as we have, can an empty profession of faith, if a man says he has faith, if he makes a profession of faith, can that faith, can that profession of faith save him? And the answer is no. No one is saved by a profession of faith. In 2.24, we will see James simply say, that saving faith in Christ is always the kind of faith that works. Saving faith is more than collection of truthful data. Notia is the Latin word. Saving faith is more than assent to the gospel facts, ascensia in the Latin. Saving faith, the gift of God, results in fruits and works to the glory of God. It is indeed fiduciary faith. It is faith that rests upon the person and the work of Christ. Saving faith, in some regard, shines before God and men. Paul did not in any way correct James, nor James Paul. James and the Apostle Paul both declared the truth of salvation by grace through faith. But James wrote of the nature of that faith which saves. And he says, saving faith behaves. Saving faith behaves. The gospel truth is visually justified before the eyes of men in the will of God because saving faith behaves. Does it perfectly behave? Of course not. You know that for yourself. But saving faith behaves. That's the message of James. And as a result of that, the particular little chorus that we're going to use uh, at the conclusion of our study in James uh, will be, be the old 
uh, chorus rendering uh, from the hymn, uh, Living for Jesus, A Life That is True. And that chorus, uh, as you'll recall it, uh, sings, O Jesus, Lord and Savior, I give myself to thee. For thou in thine atonement did give thyself for me. I own no other master. My heart shall be thy throne. My life I give. Henceforth to live, O Christ, for thee alone. You'll find the words in your bulletin. But before we sing that song at the conclusion of this hour, I simply would ask you these James-driven questions. One, does your belief in Jesus behave? Does your confession of Jesus align with conduct becoming a Christian? Does your doctrinal embrace of the truth flow forward with deeds glorifying to God? The clear biblical expectation on my life and yours as a Christian is that our faith would believe or behave, that our confession would be matched by Christ-like conduct, and that our doctrinal embrace would flow forward with deeds that glorify God. And if that is not a proven standard in your life, you cannot be a pastor, you cannot be a deacon, you cannot be a Sunday school teacher, you cannot serve the Lord in a recognized public stance of service capacity without having a reputation of a faith that behaves. You agree? Don't be quick. Because this is the issue that has defined my ministry at the First Baptist Church of Elto, and it's still a battle, assure me. Let's listen to the word of God. Let's be ready to be challenged week in and week out concerning a belief that behaves. If I'm not a behaving Christian, I should not be your pastor. And if our deacons are not behaving Christians, they should not be our deacons. And if the people teaching Sunday school or educational are or having public responsibility in the church are not behaving as Christians and maintain that reputation, just like James had a reputation as James the just. He wasn't perfect, but he sure had that reputation. And without that reputation, you disqualify yourself from public recognition and service in a local church. That is the issue of the book of James, a faith that behaves. Father, thank you for the unique opportunity to rally our minds in coming days around this blessed letter and help us as we work with that unique sense of doctrinal truth that is to be placed in juxtaposition. May our response today be pleasing in your sight. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.